You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, here on this third day of March 2012. And I would, of course, as always, like to welcome everyone back to my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find the articles, interviews, videos, and previous podcast episodes that I have created and conducted over the past five years. And right now, as I speak here on the 3rd of March 2012, you can also find on the front page a link to the brand new 2010 Video Archive DVD. That's right, friends, I have just released a brand new DVD, a video DVD of almost 120 minutes of video, so absolutely a jam-packed DVD featuring nine videos that were created by CorbettReport.com in 2010. So that includes some interviews that I did with people like Gerald Salente, Alex Jones, and Dan Dix of PressForTruth.tv, and also some commentary that I've done, The Meaning of Austerity and When False Flags Don't Fly, a couple of episodes of my former video weekly news update series, Sunday Update, and one classic episode of my current weekly news video update, New World Next Week, done, of course, in conjunction with James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, as well as a bonus little uh, video that I created uh, just attending some Japanese fireworks here in the lovely sunny climes of Western Japan. So all of that available for the first time ever on DVD. Once again, the link is there on the front page of CorbettReport.com, and you can also find it via CorbettReport.com support, where you can also figure out how to subscribe to the newsletter for as little as 100 Japanese yen per month. And the e-newsletter is sent out on the first of every month, and that includes some news roundup and commentary by myself, as well as recommended reading and viewing, and a subscriber-only video, and 25% discount on all of the Corbett Report DVDs. And of course, there on CorbettReport.com support, you can also find links to the other Corbett Report DVDs that are on offer, the 2009 Video Archive and the Data DVD Volume 1. And of course, all of this is freely available for download from CorbettReport.com, but your purchases of the DVDs not only give you a handy-dandy tool that you can make copies of and spread around as you will to fr friends, family, and complete strangers... But also, of course, it does help to support CorbettReport.com, and it makes all of this media possible. So once again, to all of those who have purchased their copies of these DVDs and or been subscribers, I could not thank you enough. And now, as always, we have a ton of information to get through in today's episode, so let's get straight into the podcast. Welcome, my friends, to episode 220 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Strange Case of Sirhan Sirhan. All right, class, pop quiz time. Don't worry, it's only multiple choice. Which of the following clips are real, and which are works of fiction? Exhibit A. You are to shoot the presidential nominee through the head, and Johnny will rise gallantly to his feet, and lift Ben Arthur's body in his arms, stand in front of the microphones, and begin to speak. The speech is short. It's the most rousing speech I've ever read. It's been worked on here and in Russia on and off for over eight years. I shall force someone to take the body away from him. Then Johnny will release those microphones and those cameras with blood all over him. Fighting off anyone who tries to help him. Defending America even if it means his own death. 
rallying a nation of television viewers into hysteria to sweep us up into the White House with powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. Exhibit B. I, I was, I, obviously I was there, but I don't remember the exact moment. I don't remember pulling my gun out of my body or whatever it was located, and I don't remember aiming at any human being. Uh -huh. I don't remember any of that. Exhibit C. In a little while, when you've woken up, we're going to put some hydrochloric acid in each one of those beakers. In front of you is an individual, a volunteer from the audience, we're going to call your target. And when you're awake, after a little while, uh, you will see a blue and white polka dot handkerchief. As soon as you see the polka dot handkerchief, blue with white polka dots, you will throw your beaker of acid into the face of the target stood opposite you. If that makes sense to you, I want you to nod your head if you understand that, if it makes sense. Excellent. Good. So did you play along? Do you have your answers ready? Okay, well, I confess, I don't know the answers myself, but that's precisely because the point of today's episode is to show that blurring of the line between reality and fiction, especially as it comes to certain events of world historical import. So I would invite you to think about what your answers to those questions may be at the beginning of today's episode, and then when you finish today's episode, perhaps you can go back and... Well, judge for yourself once again where reality ends and fiction begins and vice versa. But let's start by introducing those clips for those who didn't recognize or identify them. The first one was a clip from the 1962 film The Manchurian Candidate, based on the 1959 political thriller by Richard Condon, and starring Angela Lansbury and Frank Sinatra. And, of course, remade in 2004, although I would advise you to steer clear from the remake, as it was, I think, not quite as interesting. And the 1962 film is interesting for a number of reasons, as we will get into later in today's episode. The second clip we listened to was actually the speech of Sirhan Sirhan, talking about what he remembered, or more precisely, didn't remember, about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy on, in 1968. And the third clip that we listened to was a clip from a TV series starring Darren Brown, a reality TV series where Darren Brown was conducting a series of experiments, and this was from the very first episode of that series about assassinations. And for those of you who don't know Darren Brown or are not familiar with his work, I would highly suggest you go and uh, Scroogle, or actually you can't Scroogle his name anymore because Scroogle.org is no more. It is actually offline, so startpage.com would be a good place to go to type his name in and see what you can find because he has certainly done a lot of very interesting work and I'm sure many of my British uh, listeners will be familiar with his work. For those who aren't, once again, please take a look at Darren Brown and his very interesting work. And uh, he broadly deals with the uh, subject of hypnosis and, and the power of the mind. And it certainly behooves us to be skeptical of someone who is openly claiming to be tricking you. But still, some of the tricks that he manages to pull are quite phenomenal. So I will leave that for now. And again, we will return to that at the end of today's episode. But once again, today we are talking about Sirhan Sirhan as the eponymous character of today's uh, episode. And Sirhan Sirhan, as I'm sure many of you will no doubt be aware, is the alleged killer of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968. A reporter for the Mutual Broadcasting System, Andy West, was in the hallway, the kitchen hallway in the Ambassador Hotel last night, 
when Senator Kennedy was shot. He is perhaps the man who was closest to the senator when the shots were fired. Let's go back now to that hour last night. First, Senator Kennedy in victory, and then the voice of reporter West as our cameras show the panic that gripped the scene. So I thank, I thank all of you who made this possible this evening. All of the effort that you made and all of the people whose names I haven't mentioned, but who made all, did all of the work at the precinct level, who got out the vote, who did all of the effort, uh, brought forth all of the effort that's required. I was a campaign manager eight years ago. I know what a difference that kind of an effort and that kind of commitment makes. So I thank all of you. Those of you who are here. Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. So uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. shot in the head. I am right here. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rafer. Get it. Get the gun, Rafer. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. Hold on to him, ladies and gentlemen. Hold him. Hold him. We don't want another Oswald. Hold him, Rafer. We don't want another Oswald. Hold him, Rafer. Keep people away from him. Keep people away from him. All right, ladies and gentlemen. And people were kept away from him, and the police have him in custody. We don't want another Oswald. We don't want another Oswald. But in the end, we get a Sirhan, and one wonders if it amounts to about the same thing. Well, as that rather dramatic audio clip from the ABC News archives uh, captured, yes, indeed, uh, the, the events unfolded right there in plain sight. Everyone saw it. Sirhan Sirhan with a gun in his hand shooting at Robert F. Kennedy and 
RFK goes down and dies, and Sirhan is restrained. And yes, indeed, uh, he is captured alive, and then he's taken into custody, and the wheels of justice begin turning. And it seems like an open and shut case. What could possibly be problematized about this story? It's nothing at all like the assassination of JFK, is it? So it was that the news organizations began reporting in excruciating detail on exactly how Sirhan Sirhan killed RFK. This is a 22 caliber bullet. It's like the one fired point blank at Senator Kennedy from an eight-shot Ivor Johnson revolver. A 22 caliber bullet is smaller than an eraser on the end of a pencil. It is smaller than a peanut. The man who fired the gun is Sirhan Bishara Sirhan, a 24-year-old Jordanian born in Jerusalem. He came to the United States 11 years ago. His brother describes him as a nice kid. His mother says he fell from a horse recently, and she has not been able to talk to him since. Los Angeles police say he has not talked about the shooting. ABC's Bill Lawrence examines possible motives. The the seeds of the assassination attempt against Senator Kennedy may be found in his pro-Israeli position, which was re-emphasized and underlined in that joint appearance with Senator McCarthy last Saturday night on the special issue of the special program Issues and Answers. This suggestion found some confirmation today from a pro-Arab spokesman in New York who said that the alleged would-be assassin, Jordanian-born Sirhan Sirhan, simply reflected, and I quote, the frustration of many Arabs, unquote, with American pro-Israeli politicians. Even as Senator Kennedy hovered near death, the Arab spokesman, Dr. M.T. Mahedi, said that while he was appalled by the shooting of Kennedy, his organization condemned the senator for kowtowing to Zionist pressure to the detriment of American interests in the Middle East. At best, Mahedi's statement was an extremely poor taste, and it was bad politics. At worst, it suggests that pro-Arab terrorist groups may have supplied the four $100 bills in the alleged gunman's pocket, which police called possible getaway money. So we have the murder weapon, we have a room full of witnesses who saw him firing, and we have an airtight motive for his crimes. What else could we possibly need? It seems like this entire case has been signed, sealed, and delivered, all wrapped in a nice little bow for the prosecutors. What could possibly complicate this case? Well... Let's leave that to our old friend May Brussel, who back in 1977, on Dialogue Conspiracy episode number 273, interviewed Sirhan Sirhan's prison psychologist, Dr. Edward Simpson Callis. I was a senior psychologist in San Quentin at that time. I had held that position approximately six years, and it was my duty, really, to examine men on death row, including, of course, your hands and hands. Well, uh, how long was he in prison before you met him? He had just recently arrived. Uh, he had been seen before me shortly by the prison chief psychiatrist, Dr. Smith, who uh, told me about his initial impressions, uh, he was bothered. Uh, he said to me, the picture I see in Sir Han does not match the picture I read in papers. Uh, he certainly doesn't uh, 
seemed to me a paranoid schizophrenic, as a psychiatrist testified at the trial, and uh, told me to seize her hand as often as possible to find out what the truth is. He was kept in Los Angeles through the whole trial, is that...? Yes, and after that he was transferred to San Quentin, so. death row. They have two death rows there. He was in the tower, the old death row. And, of course, the early story was that he was uh, low on intelligence and not oh, yes. too bright. Yes. Now, if you take my position, I worked for the prison and um, had seen thousands of inmates. Uh, anytime a new man comes in, you do not start questioning anything. You don't have the time for it. You don't have anything else to base uh, your doubts or assumptions, uh, you accept what the official version is. That was the attitude with which I uh, saw their hand. Uh, of course, I was somewhat influenced by Dr. Smith's first impression. He, being highly experienced, he had been over 35 years as he's psychiatrist in San Quentin. He was very experienced and very conscientious, uh, and he asked me to look into it. So. The first time I started to wonder myself uh, was after I administered the hand intelligence test. Uh, I found out that his IQ was uh, very much higher than uh, what the psychologist reported they had found during the trial. Uh, over 30 points, uh, they IQ was 98 and Maya was... Uh, uh, 129, uh, which is what we call a very superior or the upper 1% of the population. It's quite respectable. Yes. Um, uh, it, uh, I should say, startled me. Why would uh, professional people make uh, wrong statements at the trial under oath? Why would they testify? I also found out that, uh, of course, later reading the trial testimony, every word said at the trial I had a chance to study from typed-up uh, records. Um, they had also reported that Sir Han's IQ varied from below average to above average, which is uh, an improper way of reporting IQ. IQ is always a point on a ladder, sort of telling you how far you can climb. Uh, it isn't that uh, in some ways your IQ is lower or higher, it's just one number. Well, I think that uh, deception at the trial with Sirhan was identical to uh, the Lee Harvey Oswald story, the Warren Report. Of course, there was no trial. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was murdered, but the personality profile that, that was created tried to make him a bumbling fool who couldn't be used by any organization as a conspirator because his reasoning was too low. It wasn't logical to use him because he had such a low mentality who, who would trust him, you know. Right. And uh, therefore, they had to falsify it. And as I spent nine years cross-filing the Warren Commission hearings and testimony and exhibits, I found IQs, tests of Lee Harvey Oswald, and skills in all kinds of fields, Russian language, linguistics, and uh, uh, radio work, electronic work, photographic techniques, and security clearances of radar in the service. And yet, the government body, the police, the officials, found the necessity to actually purge or falsify uh, what they were saying about the person when it didn't hold up. Yeah, during the trial, Sir Hanna was uh, depicted for the press, and at the trial by the uh, judge, he was handled as a, 
crazy person, if I use a layman's term, a paranoid schizophrenic, um, so sick that he should have been always in a mental hospital, according to Dr. Diamond, who testified at the trial and saw him extensively. And the psychologist testified that he was um, barely average. Well, you know, one of the problems at the trial that I've studied was uh, I've just got first-hand information when Hugo Pinnell was on trial for allegedly killing a guard out here at Soledad, and I went to trial in Salinas, and he actually passed out in the trial and fell on the table, and he was drugged and doped. And his, uh, Leslie Van Houten was recently trialed, uh, had a trial in Los Angeles, one of the Manson girls, a new trial. And she testified uh, just a few weeks ago that she was given LSD through the entire trial while she was in prison. And they tried to blame Manson for influencing her mind. And yet when she's in a women's prison, the tide of security, the only one who could get her incoherent during a trial would be the prison officials. You can't bring your purse or anything, any, you know, to visit these people. So uh, Sirhan could be kept doped while in confinement, you know, through food or water to make him appear um, a certain way, couldn't it? And then when the trial's over, yeah. he comes to you yeah. as a different person. He was very much a different person as the picture given, given to the public by press and uh, the professionals at the trial. Anyone who saw him in San Quentin um, could readily tell, and the cards, I'm sure I could verify this, could really tell that he was as normal as uh, anybody else there. That uh, he certainly wasn't schizophrenic. He was rather thoughtful, reflective. Uh. Incidentally, this program does get down to solidad. Um, the men are not allowed to make coat hanger antennas or wires or whatever they did, but it does get to some of the people there. And Sirhan is there at solidad. Is there any special message, you know, through the grapevine? Uh, I would like to tell him. Tell him. What would you yes. like to tell Sirhan? Sirhan, well, as an go, old friend and buddy. Yeah, I would go back to our many conversations um, and I started to enjoy them because he was rather intelligent and uh, had read a good deal. I would tell him to remember what he kept telling me over and over. I must have an Arab lawyer. You know the conflict between the Jews and Arabs and I somehow end up uh, always someone with Jewish background representing me, and I want an Arab lawyer. Right now I find he has again a Jewish lawyer, whom I have had no reason to learn to trust, uh, just reading his statements. I wrote a long uh, affidavit in Sir Hans' behalf. I studied the trial transcripts, and today, uh, over phone, someone in uh, L.A., Supervisor Baxter Ward's office, told me that his present lawyer hasn't even uh, uh, read it. Uh, he was asking from them for a copy of my affidavit. And Why didn't you write to me directly? And they also said that uh, Mr. Isaac, his present lawyer, does not want psychiatrists and psychologists to talk to Sir Han. 
That seems very strange. Very strange. I have here uh, San Francisco Sunday Examiner and Chronicle, dated September 28, 1975. That's just a little less than two years ago, and there's a picture of you on there, and it says, One Man's Theory, a hypnotist set up Sirhan, and the article goes on, Was Sirhan, Sirhan some sort of Manchurian candidate hypnotically programmed to participate in the 1968 assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy and take the blame. And then it goes on to quote you that he was prepared by somebody, he was hypnotized by someone. Oh, what a load of rich, creamery butter. Are you really expecting me to believe that the CIA or some other manipulative agency actually used hypno-programming techniques to try to mind-control a person? That's total bunk. I won't believe it until I see some documentation that proves that that ever really happened. It's the stuff of a Hollywood movie, but a group of veterans has filed a lawsuit against the CIA and U.S. Army claiming that the government planted remote control devices in their brains. The claims relate to a government program at the U.S. Army's Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, where scientists tested hundreds of chemical and biological substances on at least 7,800 servicemen. So could this really be happening? Well, joining me to help discuss this is Dr. Colin Ross, president of the Colin A. Ross Institute for Psychological trauma. Dr. Ross, tell me, is this really happening? Did the government really take part in mind control experiments on soldiers? What kind of stories have you heard from the survivors of these experiments? I know you've had access to thousands of documents from the CIA. Well, it's just like you just said, there's two kind of streams of information. There's stories from survivors, and then there's the documents. So if I go to the documents first, they're very, very detailed, 15,000 pages uh, plus. And we're starting back in 1950 with projects called Artichoke and Bluebird, which were then rolled over into MK Ultra, which in turn was rolled over to MK Search. And then all the documents stop in 1973. So in that era, 50 to 73, uh, there's a whole host of different types of mind control experiments, hypnosis, LSD, special interrogation chambers, and brain electrode implants. And so there's projects uh, in the CIA documents and in Army records where electrodes are put into uh, dolphins, and the dolphins are directed by remote transmitter to deliver a bomb to a target. And there's a discussion of uh, similar technology in cats and other animals. There's uh, research funded by the Office of Naval Research published in mainstream journals where electrodes are put in the brains of cats, dogs, and their behaviors controlled, and even human beings at uh, Harvard and Yale. So, so this is absolutely documented fact. So tell me how commonplace this was. Is this, are we talking about one program that took place decades ago, or do you think it's happening more often than that? And if so, how could it be so secretive? I mean, most people would think this can't be true. This is, a stuff, this is stuff out of a movie. Right. Uh, it was not just one program back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It was Harvard, uh, Yale, Tulane, UCLA. So we know there was more than one university involved, more than one branch of the military, more than one program for a fact. What's going on currently, of course, is all classified. People tell you stories about it, but I can't actually prove that it's happening today. I'm 
certain that it is, but I can't prove it. Okay, so did these people know what was happening to them? I mean, uh, in a lot of the articles I've read, it seemed like they kind of volunteered to be part of some sort of experiment, right? Yeah, and a lot of the different experiments, like there was a group of children in a school for the mentally retarded in New England. Their parents were told that the children were participating in a study of a dietary supplement, but actually plutonium was being added to their cereal. So there's all types of different experiments where no real consent was given, the people didn't really know what was going on, and they were basically tricked. And I think in the brain electrode experiments, it's kind of a combination of both. Some patients were told you have an electrodes put in your brain, but it's for some therapy purpose when it was really research. Others were told, go, go here and volunteer and you don't really have much choice. And others were given sort of a more exact story. So what exactly would the government do when they would control someone's mind? What could they make someone do when they manipulated their brains? Well, what it describes in the documents and in the published papers is uh, there's actually photographs of a 16-year-old girl. She's got a series of electrodes in her brain. Depending on which button's being pushed on the transmitter, she's either strumming her guitar, pounding furiously on the wall, or staring off into space. With the animals, they're actually directed to walk or swim to a target. So you can control... Uh, the actual physical motion and the mental state. How detailed and how fine-tuned that's gotten since 1970, again, I don't know because it's all classified. But and it must have gotten a lot more developed. How fast can this happen? I mean, how fast can someone's mind be taken over? Does it happen over a period of weeks or days? Well, the, the electrodes is a little different because you just put the electrode in, you push the button, and it happens right away. But with the... Uh, more brainwashing style where there's sensory deprivation, sensory isolation, hypnosis, good cop, bad cop techniques. Uh, we're talking months, minimum. It's a long-term conditioning process. And how long can someone's mind be controlled? I've seen videos of people in these kind of hypnotic states. How long are they in those states? Well, they, they come back in experimental literature that's published in normal journals. You can have a post-hypnotic suggestion that's implanted that the person doesn't remember, and you can tap into it months at least later, if not years. In the brainwashing literature, apparently people can be in a sleeper state indefinitely. But of course, this is all secret and classified, so you can't actually document and prove it. And you mentioned that you are convinced that this could still be going on today. What other kind of experiments do you think the CIA could be doing today? Well, I would say uh, intelligence agencies around the world probably have Manchurian candidate sleepers operative today, and they're using a whole range of techniques to control and create them, which is in, in terrorist organizations, there's going to be the religious doctrine part of it, but it's the basic mind control programming technology that we've known about for decades. You control a person's life space, control the information flow, uh, Talk to them, talk to them, talk to them, convince them, convince them, convince them, frighten them, terrorize them, soften them up with hypnosis, drugs, which can be IV drugs or drugs by mouth, 
it's, so it's a whole range of different techniques. It's not just one thing. Wow, yeah, it's a very unbelievable story, but uh, so fascinating. That was Dr. Colin Ross, president of the Colin A. Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. Yes, well, I think for longtime listeners of this podcast, the fact that there were numerous programs uh, through the CIA and presumably other agencies that are documented and that we do know, now know about that operated for decades trying to look for ways to manipulatively control people's minds, well, it should not be surprising, especially since we've covered it in the past on this podcast. And of course, this goes back to programs like MK Ultra and Operation Artichoke and Operation Bluebird and other such uh, pieces of the puzzle, which you can put together for yourself on your own time. And there is plenty of documentation out there on uh, all of this. And you might want to use the documentation uh, notes for today's episode as a starting point for that investigation. But just before we leave that RT clip with that interview with the, uh, the professor there, I think it should at least be noted and stored away for later that there was a reference to the plot of Day of the Dolphin, a 1973 film that, uh, that is referenced there about a, an assassination plot involving trained dolphins. That, uh, that is quite interesting and was actually based on real research done by a real researcher who I will let you go and discover the cookie trail, the breadcrumb trail for yourself on that one. And uh, just store that in mind for later in today's episode. At any rate, we'll move along from the general point that these types of operations did occur and that there were uh, actual real experimentation underway for many decades to try to basically control people's minds through uh, the CIA and other agencies. And we'll move into the specific of how this relates to today's topic of Sirhan Sirhan. And this relates to the most recent push by Sirhan's defense team to uh, get the case retried based on new evidence. Now, you might know that Sirhan has since come up for parole 14 times and has been denied parole all 14 times. But last year, his defense team actually filed for a retrial based on the fact that there is new evidence in this case. And the new evidence is new uh, acoustic evidence that indicates there were 13 shots fired, which of course would be physically impossible for Sirhan to have done it all since he only had eight shots in his revolver. The implication being there was at least a second gunman somewhere in the room. So that uh, that is now uh, before the courts, and uh, as far as I'm aware, there's still a lot of legal wrangling going on about that. But at the time that that was filed, there was also a very, very, very interesting part that was filed uh, along with that legal brief, and that was picked up on some by the uh, the media. Uh, we'll take our uh, cue from Boston.com, April 29th, 2011. Sir Han's lawyers argue mind control plot. Quote, Lawyers for convicted assassin Sirhan Sirhan said in new legal papers that he was manipulated by a seductive girl in a mind control plot to shoot Senator Robert F. Kennedy, and his bullets did not kill the presidential candidate. The documents filed this week in federal court and obtained by the Associated Press detail extensive interviews with Sirhan during the past three years, some done while he was under hypnosis. The papers point to a mysterious girl in a polka dot dress as the controller who led Sirhan to fire a gun in the pantry of the Ambassador Hotel. But the documents suggest a second person shot and killed Kennedy while using Sirhan as a diversion. For the first time, Sirhan said under hypnosis that on a cue from the girl, he went into range mode, believing he was at a firing range and seeing circles with targets in front of his eyes. I thought that I was at the range more than I was actually shooting at any person, 
let alone Bobby Kennedy. Sirhan was quoted as saying during interviews with Daniel Brown, a Harvard University professor and specialist in trauma memory and hypnosis. He interviewed Sirhan for 60 hours, with and without hypnosis, according to the legal brief. End quote. Now, I will let you go and explore that article some more and explore some of the other articles that came out around that time and later on in December of last year regarding this uh, this very interesting part of the Sirhan case, and it revolves around the legal team that's now being led by William Pepper, someone who we've featured in, on this podcast before, specifically in, his, in relation to his excellent work on the MLK case. But, uh, but I thought it was interesting that, uh, that this all revolves around these types of plots that we've talked about before again and have been exposed in various ways through the years. But, uh, but it all comes together in the Sirhan case in a quite remarkable way. And to get some more indication of that, we're going to take a look at Probe Magazine, the May-June 1998 issue, uh, volume 5, number 4, that's available at ctka.net, once again, available from the documentation section of CorbettReport.com. And this is from an article called Sirhan and the RFK Assassination, Part 2, Rubik's Cube, by Lisa Pease. And in that article, there's a section on the question of hypnosis. So reading from that section, quote, Just hours after the assassination, famed hypnotist Dr. William Joseph Bryan was on the Ray Brime show for KABC Radio and mentioned offhandedly that Sirhan was likely operating under some form of post-hypnotic suggestion. Dr. Bryan was the president of the American Institute of Hypnosis, the headquarters of which were located on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Bryan was famous for having hypnotized Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, and claimed to have discovered DeSalvo's motive under hypnosis. There is good reason to doubt that DeSalvo was in fact the killer, according to Susan Kelly in her recent heavily documented book, The Boston Stranglers. And if he was not, that throws a more sinister light on Brian's overtly coercive involvement with DeSalvo. Curiously, DeSalvo was the topic of one of Sirhan's disjointed post-assassination ramblings at LAPD headquarters, and references to DeSalvo appear in Sirhan's notebook. Brian, by his own account, had been the chief of all medical survival training for the U.S. Air Force, which meant the brainwashing section. He also claimed to have been a consultant for the film The Manchurian Candidate, based on Richard Condon's famous novel about a man who is captured by communists and hypnotically programmed to return to the United States to kill a political leader. Condon's novel was itself based upon the CIA's artichoke program, which sought to find a way to create a programmed amnesiac assassin. Artichoke became MKUltra. Brian bragged to prostitutes that he had performed special projects for the CIA and that he had programmed Sirhan. Publicly, Brian denied any involvement with Sirhan. Brian was a brilliant but sometimes insufferable egotist who seems to have had a ready opinion on nearly any subject. But whenever Sirhan came up, with the exception of that first night, he uncharacteristically shut down and refused to discuss the case. It would appear that if Brian was not himself directly responsible, he had some inside knowledge perhaps as to who was and chose not to reveal it. Ultimately, the case for hypnosis does not rest on Brian, and whether or not he worked on Sirhan has no bearing on the overall issue of Sirhan having been hypnotized. End quote. And yes, you will, of course, note once again the reference to fiction, quote-unquote, the Manchurian Candidate, which itself was based on CIA's artichoke program, which became MKUltra. So if you're starting to get the sense of how all of this fiction 
really starts to blend and blur into reality, well, you're starting to get the point of today's episode. But just to make that point even more clear, let's just read the next line from that very same Probe magazine article by Lisa Pease, quote, After seeing the movie Conspiracy Theory, many people wondered if MKUltra was indeed a real government program. Yes, Virginia, there was a sinister mind control program in which people were made to undergo hideous, obscene mental and physical tortures in the CIA's quest for a way to create a Manchurian candidate. It should be noted that Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, and, surprisingly, the Rockefeller Foundation were instrumental in developing, supporting, and funding the CIA's various mind control programs. End quote. Yes, well, I think we're all starting to get a sense of just how weird all of this is and how deep it goes, and there is certainly much, much more information in that article and many other articles besides about Sirhan and his involvement in all of this and how this could all be related. But still, it's one thing to talk about these types of government programs and what we publicly know about them because of the declassified information that has since come out about them, talking about Artichoke and Bluebird and MKUltra, but it's another thing entirely to say that it is truly possible to program someone to kill someone against their will and then to have them co completely forget about that. I mean, that's a pretty extraordinary claim. And as the skeptics, I think, rightly say, for extraordinary claims, you need extraordinary proof. And that's precisely what was provided on the TV reality show The Experiments by Darren Brown, which... Once again, we heard a little bit of at the beginning of today's episode. Let's just listen to a little bit more of the setup for this episode in which Darren Brown, the famed hypnotist and, uh, and illusionist, managed to, well, let's let him explain the setup for this. If this experiment is to succeed, neither Chris, a sports marketing executive, nor his family and friends can have any idea that I'm going to try and program him into becoming an assassin. As far as they're all concerned, he's simply taking part in a show that explores the limits of hypnotism. We talked to the people closest to him and slipped in some questions about violence. He's a very peace-loving person, so I can't imagine him being violent in any sort of way. I don't think Chris would do anything bad to anybody. Um... Ultimately, I don't think he'd hurt a fly. Interestingly, this is what the younger brother of Bobby Kennedy's killer, Sirhan Sirhan, says about the convicted assassin's character prior to the murder. If we were sitting here and a fly happened to venture in, Sirhan would open the door, you know, and he'd try to make it go out again. It's just not conceivable to me that he would take a gun and actually use it against the person. In order to condition Chris to become an assassin, I'll be using brainwashing techniques allegedly employed by the CIA's MK Ultra program in the 1960s. There are two key stages to this process, the marksman mode and spontaneous amnesia. Eyewitness accounts report that Robert Kennedy's assassin, Sirhan Sirhan, was in a trance-like state during the shooting. Under hypnosis, the convicted killer has since said that he thought he was firing at a target in a rifle range and not at a human being. He claims a mystery woman in a polka dot dress pinched him on the shoulder to send him into this range or marksman mode. I'm going to try to create a similar mode for Chris, which will come into play if and when he attempts to assassinate his celebrity target. Well, you're going to ask, did it work? Well, of course it did, I'll respond. It's TV. Anything strange happened during the talk? 
going to show you some footage of something that did happen. We actually had a camera on you. I know we didn't let you know that we were filming, which was important. Do you remember that woman in the polka dot dress? No. Don't remember turning around and talking to you? No. Remember that bit? No. Yes, at the moment you will have no memory of this at all, but you just assassinated a national treasure. <laughs> yeah, you shot me. Okay, so look, you know when you have a dream and you have no memory of it and then somebody says something that just kind of triggers it and then bit by bit it just starts to come back. And if you do think about it now, just start to think back for me. It's just like a mental block that you have there at the moment. And you can just start to let that go and you can start to let it... What's coming back to you? I remember the, the poker, that woman coming in there. And yeah, just kind of picking the gun up from the side, like, like I was told. Where did you think you were? Nowhere, but it, like, if anywhere, it was closest to the, like, the range because I mean, I could visualise the, the lights going down and the, and the target and picking it up, felt like I was picking it off that bench. Did you feel anything when you were no. aiming a loaded, <laughs> a loaded gun at Stephen? Not really, no, no. Just felt like the kind of the outline of the target. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, of course, this was not a scientifically controlled experiment, and the skeptics in the audience will obviously say that this is not proof of anything and that they are still skeptical. It's just a TV show, and it could be set up in so many ways. And of course, they're right in saying that, but certainly I think anyone who watches the episode, unless the entire thing was a complete setup from start to finish and everyone's involved in it, I think it at least proves the concept that this type of thing is possible. And for those who are truly skeptical, I would invite them to be hypnotized and see what types of things they can be made to put up, be put up to uh, during that hypnosis. And of course, as is made clear in that episode, it's not to say that anyone can be made into this type of hypno program killer, it takes a very, very, very special type of susceptible person to be that susceptible to suggestion. But, uh, but still, I think the idea has certainly been established for a long time. And once again, we have people like Harvard University professor Daniel Brown conducting his interviews with Sirhan under hypnosis, but in which he claimed to have gone into the exact type of range mode that Darren Brown claims to have induced in the subject of this TV show. So once again, it's a strange, bizarre story that combines both real and quote-unquote fictitious elements into a story that is actually much more interesting and much more convoluted and much crazier than anything the Hollywood people have ever come up with. But there you go. And just when you thought this episode was going to wrap up on a note like that, I'm going to throw a complete curveball at you and say it's much, much much weirder than all of that. Let's listen to a very interesting conversation that James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com con conducted two years ago with Peter Lavenda, the author of Sinister Forces. And then, of course, in 1968, in June of 1968, we have just a few months, uh, no, about uh, a year before the killings, we have Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate uh, at a dinner party. This this blows my mind. So I just this is one of those things that again when I mention it to people, you can't explain these kind of things away. 
Well, you can't. This is the problem. This is why if we talk about coincidence, we talk about conspiracy. Neither of these two explanations really does this justice. But anyway, there's a dinner party. Uh, the dinner party is given by John Frankenheimer, famous Hollywood director, who had directed the original film version of The Manchurian Candidate, that novel by Richard Condon about brainwashing Korean uh, prisoners of war. Uh, a guy is brainwashed uh, in the film version. It's Lawrence Harvey. He comes back from Korea. He's hailed as a great American hero, but he's actually a programmed assassin, programmed by the communists to kill a presidential candidate. Well, Frankenheimer had gone to Jack Kennedy and said, look, we're going to make this film, but I won't make it if you think it's just not a good thing to do since you're involved with the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and the SALT Treaty and all the rest of it. And Kennedy said, don't worry about it. Make the film. It came out in 1962. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. The film was pulled out of uh, distribution and was not seen again for 30 years. Well, now, and it, we have to, of course, mention that this is a different era. When a film was not circulating around in the 35-millimeter cans, that was it. Oh, yeah. There were no DVDs. <laughs> you know, there was no YouTube version. It was gone. It was just pulled out. That was all. Uh, and it starred Frank Sinatra, Angela Lansbury, Lawrence Harvey. These were all names to conjure with in those days. And still the film was pulled out. Uh, Sinatra wanted it pulled out. Sinatra, who had loved Jack Kennedy, saw too many eerie connections between the film and the reality. So he also wanted it pulled. Everybody wanted it pulled. They pulled the film. So in 1968... Now, it's five years after the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Frankenheimer's giving a, a dinner party. Or of, at of the dinner John party. Kennedy. Sorry. Five Excuse years me? after the assassination of John Kennedy. Of John Kennedy. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, he's giving a dinner party, Frankenheimer, for Robert Kennedy. And at the dinner party is Robert Kennedy, I think four of Kennedy's children and his wife. And also at the dinner party is Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski. So they're all having dinner together. And within 24 hours, Bobby Kennedy would be assassinated because that was his last supper. That was the evening of the election where they were voting in California to see if he would win the California primary, which, of course, he did. Uh, he went back to the hotel. Uh, he gave his famous speech on to Chicago, and within moments, he was murdered. So you can imagine what's going through Frankenheimer's head. You know, so, you know, here I do the film about uh, an assassination and Jack gets assassinated. And now I have, you know, Bobby Kennedy over to dinner and he gets assassinated. But at the same time, of course, there's that awful connection. There's Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, Bobby Kennedy, John Frankenheimer, all in one place, all on that very, very important day in which we saw American political history uh, changed quite significantly with the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. So the director of The Manchurian Candidate a movie about the hypnotically programmed assassination of a U.S. president that took place shortly before the assassination of a U.S. president, held a party that was, in effect, the Last Supper for a presidential candidate who was later that night to be hypnotically assassinated. Oh, and uh, regarding some of the other attendees of that party, Roman Polanski, it just so happens that he was originally slated to direct The Day of the Dolphin. Oh, and it just gets weirder and weirder from that point. And there are so many bizarre connections that I will invite you to explore through the rest of that interview with Peter Lavenda and so many other sources besides. But I think we've probably done enough of a number on your head today. And on that note, we'll leave things there. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.